Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our online service. We hope you're having a great day. We're so happy to have you here as we continue our series on overcoming fear. If there's anything we can do to help you, we'd love for you to reach out to us. If you have any prayer requests, please send us your email. And please remember to check your emails, including your junk folder, for our weekly email updates. Also, continue to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. So that's it for today. We hope that you have a wonderful day. God bless.
Genesis 32, 3-12. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord, that I may find favor in his eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of father Isaac, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Hello, everyone. In our current preaching series that we've been doing over the past few weeks, entitled Overcoming Fear, we have been considering examples from Scripture of how God's presence and God's power during times of intense fear make it possible to not only survive, but to thrive. After graduating from high school, I worked a summer job at a local furniture and carpet store. The upstairs was the furniture showroom. The downstairs was the carpet and flooring department. My job was primarily downstairs in the carpet department as well as making home deliveries. The carpet installers were not employees of the business. They were independent contractors who were paid based on the amount of flooring they installed. Most of the carpet installers were guys who grew up in the church, but were now living lives, well, let's just say very contrary to how they were raised. But they were really kind, really friendly, and actually a great group of guys to be around. But there was one installer who was actually a committed churchgoer, and sadly, he was mean and rude. One day I was asked to make a delivery, so I was backing the box truck up to the loading doors to load on the delivery I would make. I didn't realize that a van belonging to one of the carpet installers had just pulled in and I accidentally backed into the back corner of it. I jumped out of the truck to assess the situation, only to find that I had dented the back corner of the van. The van belonging to, you guessed it, the mean Christian. I was faced with a dilemma. I could confess what I had done and face the wrath of this mean Christian guy, or since no one actually saw me do it, I could pretend like it never happened. And in the moment, I decided to go with option B. I loaded the truck, made the delivery, and went home for lunch. 
But there was a problem. The problem was my conscience. It was bothering me so much that my neighbor's fiance saw me and asked me what it was that was wrong. And so I poured out my story to him. And he said, well, you know what you need to do. And he was right. So after lunch, I went to the owner of the company, who was my boss, and confessed what I had done. He appreciated my honesty. Being a spiritual man himself and knowing how mean the Christian installer was, he decided to be the one to share the news and the company actually even offered to pay for the repair. I had escaped the direct wrath of this mean Christian installer, encountering only a dark death stare whenever he saw me. Hitting the van was an accident, a mistake. But confessing my mistake and taking responsibility for it, well, that was a choice. First a bad choice, and then ultimately a good choice. Taking responsibility for our actions and decisions and being willing to face the consequences, well, it's very important. And so today we are going to be considering the story of Jacob preparing to meet his brother Esau in Genesis chapter 32. We will specifically be considering the fear that comes when we must face the consequences of our actions and our decisions. And we will see today that the fear of facing the consequences of our actions and decisions can keep us from experiencing the deep inner change that God desires to bring in our lives. The story of Jacob in Genesis is a long story. And to fully grasp the significance of today's scripture, we need to do a very quick journey through the life of Jacob. The first thing I want us to see is the birthright. The overarching theme of the story of Jacob is struggle. Rebecca, Jacob's mother, became pregnant with twins. The movement of the unborn children inside her was so great that the word used to describe it is actually violent. Violent. It was so bad that she prayed to God, asking him why such an intense struggle was going on inside of her. God told her that two nations were represented inside of her, and that the older one would serve the younger one, which is actually a reversal of how things normally would go. Rebecca gave birth to twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Esau was born first. He grew to be a rough, outdoorsy type, a hunter. We're told that he's really hairy. Jacob came out a close second, grasping onto the heel of his brother as if he was trying to overtake his brother in the birth order. He grew to be physically weaker of the two, quiet, stay-at-home, sort of mama's boy. And he was smooth, not hairy. In this culture, the firstborn son received special esteem, privileges, a double portion of the father's inheritance. Since the firstborn was responsible to care for the widows and unmarried sisters in the family, he would need more resources. 
the firstborn was also recognized as the authority, the leader of the family upon the father's passing. By virtue of being born first, Esau held the birthright. He would, upon his father's passing, become the leader of the family and, in doing so, be inherit twice as much as his brother Jacob. We are told in Genesis chapter 25, verse 34, that Esau despised his birthright. Now, what that means is he didn't value it. He didn't appreciate it. It wasn't important to him. He didn't want the additional responsibilities that came with the birthright. Now, Jacob, on the other hand, he wanted it more than anything. And so one day, when Esau returned from hunting, he was starving. And Jacob had just made a stew, and we find Esau begging Jacob for some of the stew. And so Jacob proposed a deal. He would provide food to Esau in exchange for Esau's birthright. Well, since Esau didn't value the birthright to begin with, he easily traded it for a bowl of stew. Jacob took advantage of Esau's vulnerability and ended up with the birthright. Secondly, the blessing. The birthright was assigned based on birth order, but was enacted in its fullness through the blessing of the father prior to his passing. Esau had traded his birthright to Jacob. The birthright now belonged to Jacob, but Isaac, their father, didn't know what had happened. Without Isaac's blessing, the birthright stolen from Esau was worthless. Isaac was near death and called Esau into his tent. He informed him that he was going to enact the blessing so that Esau could take his rightful place in the family. First, he asked him to go hunt some wild game, and from that wild game to make him a delicious meal, and then following the meal, he would enact and fulfill the responsibility of giving Esau the blessing. So Esau hurried off to hunt the game and make the meal. Rebekah, his mother, overheard the conversation and played a pivotal role in guaranteeing that Jacob, not Esau, would inherit the father's blessing. Jacob had taken advantage of his vulnerable brother and taken the birthright, and now he will deceive his father and take the blessing with his mother's help. Rebecca devised a plan. Isaac was old, his eyesight was failing, and that is what they would exploit. Jacob would bring two young goats to Rebecca, and she would prepare a meal from those goats for Isaac. Jacob would dress in Esau's clothes so he would smell like Esau. And Rebekah would wrap the goat skin on Jacob's arm and on his neck so he would be hairy like Esau. When Jacob brought the meal to Isaac, Isaac asked who it was, since the voice didn't sound like Esau. And Jacob lied and said, it's Esau. Isaac asked him to come near as he came near, he could smell the smell of Esau from the clothes. He reached out his hands and this boy felt like Esau, even though he didn't sound like Esau. Isaac ate the meal that Rebekah had prepared, and then he blessed Jacob. Jacob had taken Esau's birthright, and now he had taken Esau's blessing. Esau returned 
with the meal, only to discover that his brother had already been there and received the blessing instead of him. Esau was angry, and it says that he held a grudge against Jacob. The word grudge means a long-term persistent hatred. He was fuming. Esau decided that he would kill Jacob once his father had passed away. Rebekah found out about Esau's plan to kill Jacob and warned Jacob. She encouraged him to run away to his uncle Laban's home and be safe from Esau. So Jacob fled his family, his homeland, to get away from Esau. Thirdly, we see wrestling. Jacob was received into Laban's home, but found himself on the receiving end of deception as he continued his life of struggle. First, he worked for seven years in order to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel, only to be deceived into marrying her older sister, Leah, instead. He then worked another seven years and finally married Rachel. After 20 years of living on Laban's land, Laban began to turn on Jacob. And so God spoke to Jacob and told him, Jacob, it's time for you to go back home. So Jacob set out with his family, his servants, and his share of the livestock. Returning to his homeland meant he would have to confront his past and be accountable for what he had done to his brother Esau. Jacob was afraid of encountering Esau. He's expecting Esau to take revenge for stealing his birthright and then his blessing. He desired to soften Esau's potential hatred, so he sent an entourage of servants ahead with a large gift of livestock for Esau. The servants returned with an update that Esau was coming to meet Jacob and there were 400 men accompanying him. Jacob assumed that Esau was coming to kill him, so he began to pray. God, coming back here was your idea. Please rescue me from Esau. Jacob then divided his livestock into three groups and sent each of the groups, his servants and his family, his wives and children, across the river in hopes to soften his brother's response since they would meet Esau first. And he stayed alone on the other side of the river. Now what happened next was the pinnacle of Jacob's story. Jacob prayed that God would rescue him from Esau, but in reality, Jacob needed to be rescued from himself, from a lifetime of struggling, deceiving, manipulating, and lying. Jacob had struggled his whole life to get ahead. In fact, his very name, Jacob, means deceiver. And now a lifetime of struggle was about to culminate with a life-changing struggle with God. Now he was alone. Everything he owned was on the other side of the river. Everything he loved was on the other side of the river. And he is now facing possible death. We're told a heavenly visitor came to Jacob and began to wrestle with him. Now, this struggle is not simply a physical wrestling or struggle. It is symbolic of the struggle within Jacob's character. 
Jacob needed a deep-rooted change, and only God could change him. This struggle is about Jacob aligning his life with God. The struggle lasted through the night, and in the morning, the visitor announced that he was leaving. Well, Jacob declared that he would not let go of the visitor without first receiving God's blessing. He had received Esau's birthright. He had received Isaac's blessing. But what he needed most was a change of character that would be confirmed by God's blessing in his life. The struggle ended with the visitor injuring Jacob's hip. He would forever walk with a limp as a reminder of the moment in his life when he struggled with God and prevailed with a change in his character. The visitor announced that Jacob's name would also change. His whole life he was Jacob the deceiver. He would now be known as Israel. Israel means he who struggled with God. The most important struggle in a life filled with struggles was the struggle he had with God. He then went out to meet Esau and was actually surprised that Esau embraced him, accepted him back. Jacob did not allow the fear of facing his consequences to keep him from the changes that needed to take place in his life and being restored to his brother. Now, there are two observations that I would like to draw from our text today. The first is mistakes versus choices. Many years ago, when I was a youth pastor, there was a young man in our youth group. He didn't grow up in the church. I met him in the community. I invited him to attend, and he eventually became a follower of Jesus. One day, he asked if we could have lunch. He was obviously very nervous, and he blurted out, I made a big mistake and my girlfriend is pregnant. Now, as a part of helping him through this dilemma, I helped him understand that he hadn't made a mistake. He had made a wrong decision, a wrong choice, and was now experiencing the consequences of that decision, of that choice. Well, you might say, well, that's just semantics. A mistake or a wrong decision, aren't they really the same thing? Well, no, they are not. There is a significant difference. A mistake is accidentally denting a vehicle while backing up without seeing it there. A mistake is putting information in the wrong box when you're filling out a form or misspelling a word and having to start all over again. But a wrong decision is choosing to do something that you know is wrong but you do it anyway. So why is this important? Well, it's important because if we minimize our poor choices by calling them mistakes, we are lessening the significance of what we have done. And the truth is we like to do that, to make ourselves feel less responsible, to feel less guilty. But if we lessen the significance of our poor choices, we will continue to live our lives staying the same and not experiencing the deep-rooted change that needs to take place in our lives. So the fear of facing the consequences of our actions and decisions can actually keep us from experiencing the deep inner change 
that God desires to bring in our lives. So own your wrong choices and your actions. Face the consequences and allow God to change you. Secondly, change versus punishment. The truth is, Jacob deserved punishment for how much pain he had inflicted on those around him throughout his life. Yet God's ultimate desire for Jacob was not punishment, but change and reconciliation. The truth is there are many who read the Bible and come away with a conclusion that, well, God is a judgmental, merciless, punishing God who takes great joy in inflicting pain on those who don't cooperate with his agenda. I would suggest that if you read the Bible closely, you will see the opposite, that God is full of grace and mercy and love, that God desires more than anything to bless your life, to love you, to lead you, to protect you, to take care of you, and to have a relationship with you. Punishment may be what we deserve, but it's not what God desires. In fact, I believe punishment is the natural consequence of rejecting God's grace, his mercy, and his love. Folks, God does not take joy in punishing us. God's desire is to change us from deep within so we can be the people that we need to be, the people and the person we want to be. God will use the painful realities of our lives to bring about the change we need. Like Jacob, we sometimes pray because we believe that we need to be rescued from our circumstances when the truth is sometimes what we need to be rescued from the most is ourselves, our destructive behavior, our selfishness, our desires. The fear of facing the consequences of our actions and decisions can keep us from experiencing the deep inner change that God desires to bring in our lives. We wrestle with God because God loves us too much to leave us where we are, to leave us as we are. God's ultimate desire is for us to not be punished, but for us to change and be reconciled. So in conclusion this morning, may I remind us, Taking responsibility for our actions and decisions and being willing to face the consequences is very important in our lives. If we lessen the significance of our poor choices, we will continue to live our lives staying the same and not experiencing the deep-rooted change that needs to take place in our lives. That God's ultimate desire for us is not punishment, but change and reconciliation. The fear of facing the consequences of our actions and decisions can keep us from experiencing the deep inner change that God desires to bring in our lives.
thank you for joining us today. If we can be of assistance to you, please do not hesitate to email us or call us and we'll be prompt to respond to you. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. God bless you and have a great day.